Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 169, and the second installment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Grunigar. Thank you so much for joining me today. Over the next two months, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes and video lectures, which will be published on my YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Visit patreon.com Talking Tudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you will have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a copy of Dr. Estelle Peronk's brilliant new book, Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Thank you to Dr. Peronk for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 20th and the 21st of August, I'll be chatting to Adrian Dillard about Jane Seymour and Marjorie Horseman. Details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag I love Talking Tudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show is Dr. Breeze Barrington. We'll be chatting about 16th century women artists. Breeze is a cultural historian specialising in the artistic cultures, particularly of women, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Having recently been awarded her PhD on early Stuart literary and visual culture, she's now researching a book about women at the court of Mary of Medina. She works as a freelance arts writer, researcher and critic, and has written for Apollo magazine, the art newspaper, CNN Style, The Conversation and The Financial Times. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome to all things 16th century women, Breeze. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. So let's begin by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Breeze Barrington. I'm a cultural historian who specializes in female artistic production in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, So I was awarded my PhD last year, and now I'm currently writing a book about women um, at the court of Mary of Modena, particularly her ladies-in-waiting, and the sort of artistic coterie that she created around herself there. Uh, I also work as a freelance writer, and I've written for Poly Magazine, CNN Style, The Art Newspaper, and also recently in The Financial Times. Fantastic. And we are here to talk about some women artists of the 16th century. So do you want to just maybe introduce us to some of the women working as artists in that period? Yeah, absolutely. So although it certainly was a lot harder for women to become artists in the 16th century than it was for men, we do actually find quite a few women throughout Europe who were active during this period. So some of the earliest we can actually see in England, although they weren't English themselves, where we have evidence of women working as artists at the court of Henry VIII, and also continuing to work there beyond this. So Lavina Tierlink is one. So she was a Flemish artist. She worked for all of the Tudor monarchs from Henry VIII onwards. Although very little is known about her life, she was certainly very celebrated at court there. But she, you know, she really wasn't the only female artist around, and there were certainly two others, at least, that we've got records for. So there was Susanna Hornbolt, who was also Flemish, and a woman called Margaret Holswither, who she was seems to have been born in London, but not to English parents. And all three of these women, it's worth saying, they seem particularly to have been patronised by Catherine Parr, actually, Henry VIII's last wife. So although they continued to be active after that, she took a real interest in their, in their careers. But again, you know, as I said, sadly, we've got very little information beyond that about their lives and, and even really the works that she, um, sorry, that these women produced. And then in Northern Europe, there was a woman called Katharina van Hemsen. She was also a Flemish artist. Uh, she worked in Antwerp and also later in Spain. And she's often credited with having painted the very first self-portrait you know, ever, not just of women, but any of any artist. And I think it's sort of worth saying here, it's very interesting that the first self-portrait was done by a woman, but I will come back to, to talking a bit more about that later. So moving on to Italy, we find a lot more women working as artists there and not just as painters actually. So there's a woman called Propezia di Rossi. She was a sculptor and she was born in Bologna at the end of the 15th century. She was sort of active in the 16th as well. Again, very little known about her um, beyond that. And there's very little extant work. There was also another Bolognese artist who was born in 1552. She was called Lavinia Fontana and she's much better documented. So she's often said to have been the first woman to have a professional career in Europe. And although you could arguably say that some of these other women also had professional careers, I think it's said about her because she was really the primary breadwinner of the family and she actually earned huge sums of money as a painter. So she's a kind of, she's a real career woman in that sense. Then we had Sophonis Anguissola. She was from Cremona and actually also to some extent her sisters. So she had a lot of sisters, one called Elena, who became a nun, though she continued to paint after that point. Um, Lucia, who sadly died very young. Um, and we also have Europa and Anna Maria, and both of them were painters, although they gave up painting when they got married. Um, but yeah, so all of these five sisters were, painter, uh, were painters. It's also worth saying that there was another sister called Minerva, who became a writer, and she was a real scholar. So it's quite an unconventional family at the time, but lots of artistic production there. We have someone called Fede Galizia as well. She was born in Milan, 1578. 
she was a prominent and actually quite sort of pioneering still life painter. Uh, they, we still have uh, several narrative paintings and portraits of hers that also survive. But she was she was really she already had an international reputation by the time she was a teenager. Though sadly, it's still quite unclear what sort of scale her her original Earth might have been. I mean, these are really just a, a handful of artists, and I could go on. So you know, there was sort of Marietta Robusti, uh, nicknamed Tintoretta because she was Tintoretto's daughter. Barbarongi. She was in Vasari's second edition of The Lives of Artists, so she was evidently quite successful. Best English, produced illuminated manuscripts. I mean, the list isn't exactly endless, obviously, <laughs> and it's certainly only a tiny fraction of the men who were prolific, but, you know, there were a fair few about. I've really only mentioned the most sort of successful or the most unusual examples here. Yes, and I love that you've mentioned some names there that I'm not familiar with, so I need to immediately go and Google and, and see what I can find out. So thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about where these women actually learned their crafts? Do we do we know anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the vast majority of these women were daughters of painters, and that was certainly the most conventional route for women, you know, to be trained in a family studio. So just you know, going back to some names I've mentioned, so Livina Tierling's father, he was a min uh, miniaturist and he also worked with illuminated manuscripts. And it seems very likely that he trained her or at least that he trained her in, in manuscript illumination as well. Then Catherine van Hemsen, she was the daughter of the prominent mannerist painter, Jan Sanders van Hemsen. Lavinia Fontana was the daughter of Prospero Fontana, also a painter. And, you know, this also, this sort of tendency to continued in the 17th century with artists like Artemisia Gentileschi, famously, and Elisabetta Sorani, she was very prolific, also, you know, both daughters of painters. In many cases, though, it's interesting to note that daughters often really outgrew their father's training. So if we take Lavinia Fontana, you know, as I said, the daughter of Prospero Fontana, as a good example. So if you sort of compare the canvases, I mean, actually, in at the Pinacoteca in Bologna, you can really do this, they're next to each other. And uh, you can see that there's just so much more unity in the compositions and sort of development in the characters of the subjects in Lavinia Fontana's paintings than we find in the works of her father. So you can see her talent sort of outweigh her father's as, as she went on. But being trained in the family studio, although certainly the most traditional way for a woman to become a painter, it certainly wasn't the only way. So Propezia di Rossi, who I mentioned before, she was not from an artistic family. Uh, she seems to have studied with a sculptor, perhaps even at the University of Bologna, though it's not really known for sure. But there's, you know, as I said before, there's frustratingly little in the way of records. But she, again, you know, she must have been very regarded in her day because she's one of the few women, I think she, perhaps she's even the only woman who was included in Vasari's Life of the Artists in its very first print, which was in 1550. It was the sort of catalogue of all the great artists. And a few more then went into the second edition in 1568. So another interesting example who we know a little bit more about is Sifanisba Anguizola. She was the daughter of a relatively poor but very noble family in Cremona. So she was sort of nobility on both her father and on her mother's side. And she was born in 1532. So she's an exception in several ways. You know, even the daughters of artists often really had to fight to get their training. So Elisabetta Serrani, who I mentioned before, is a 17th century painter. You know, she really had to fight to make her father teach her. And he only really agreed because he had sort of men around him who recognized her talents and persuaded him that this was actually a good idea. But Anguizola's father, you know, he seems to have been really rather enlightened and he very much encouraged all of his children, you know, the boys and the girls the same, 
to pursue really anything that inspired them and to try to be good at whatever inspired them. So he ensured they all had very well-rounded educations, very artistically focused. And he was also enlightened in a different way. So he, he sent Anne Quisola when she was just 14 to study with Benedino Campi, who himself had been a student of Correggio. So, you know, he's quite, a, quite an important figure at this point. Father, her father really, he clearly believed in her talent and thought that she was worth cultivating. And this was, you know, it's worth saying this is obviously exceptionally unusual, but things like this could potentially happen. So it was after this point then that Anguizola moved to Rome and there she met Michelangelo. And he was not just a supporter of her work, but also, you know, a sort of friend, mentor and, and to some degree even another teacher. So another thing that's probably worth pointing out here is that it becomes clear as I'm talking, I think, that at each turn, these women really did have to rely on the men in their lives. You know, having been trained or encouraged by the men in the first place, they also often then married men who were supportive of their work. So Lavinia Fontana, just going back to her, she married a man called Giampaolo Zappi and he acted as her agent. He completely took responsibility for the household. You know, he acted in the way that she might have been expected to do at his wife, you know, in society, according to conventions at this time. But in the, you know, in this situation, she's the breadwinner and the family, you know, completely relied on her income to support them, as I was saying before. So, you yeah, know, several ways, but... It's mostly it's mostly if you kind of have an artistic yeah. background. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And and obviously, you know, it doesn't sound like the easiest path for a woman in the 16th century to become an artist. So what are some of the the kind of and you've touched a little bit on this, obviously, what are some of the other issues that perhaps impacted women's opportunities to become artists? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, I mean, I could make it sound quite sort of straightforward, but of course it completely wasn't. So yeah, broadly speaking, women were expected to stay within the domestic sphere. And necessarily being an artist means that you exist outside that. And that's very difficult for a woman. It's not socially acceptable. They just don't have the freedoms available to men at this time. The other big problems, so one of them would be that male artists at this time, they would usually have been apprenticed to a studio usually of an older painter, an established painter, and they would be there from a very young age and they'd remain there for some years to learn the craft. So if we take an example, um, so the artist Perugino, for example, he was one of the students trained in the student of Verrocchio along with Leonardo. Then when he became an independent, successful artist, he started a studio. He had with people, uh, lots of pupils, one of his pupils, Raphael. And, you know, it sort of goes on. There's a system, system of mentoring amongst men. And you live there and you work there and you do it all together. But women weren't allowed in this. And it would have been, you know, perhaps it goes without saying, but it obviously also wouldn't have been at all acceptable for a woman to live like that, you know, in a man's house, unmarried, all these men around. It's totally unthinkable. So women couldn't do that. That's one way of sort of training totally totally um, excluded from. Women were also generally barred from membership to artistic academies. So I think the first woman to be admitted into one of these academies was Artemisia Gentileschi in the 1620s. She went to the Accademia della Arte del Disegno in Florence and then Caterina Pierozzi some 50 years later to the same academy. And that's really just it for, this, for the 16th, 17th century. It's just, you know, a kind of void. So that's another place where people, you know, where people would learn, they would study, you know, all sorts of different subjects and they just couldn't do that. It's also, also these, um, these academies offer a kind of protection. You, you live kind of under the laws of them. So if anything happens to you, you're protected by that. So it's another way in which it's sort of harder for women. It's sort of, it's, you know, it's quite a dangerous world for women. It's a difficult world for women. And you don't have this sort of extra sort of protection. You know, it's almost like a union, I suppose, by today's yeah. standards. 
So as a result, this also means that certain subjects were a bit less available to women than to men. So they were never really able to study anatomy or life drawing, and they weren't able to paint male nudes. And it's partly for this reason of, of training, but also it's, you know, it was thought unseemly for women to, to sort of see men's naked bodies like that. And, and probably even women's too, really. It's very difficult for them to draw from life, to draw nudes from life all of which just made it so much harder for them to do the kinds of complex, the sort of multi-figure compositions such as large-scale large religious or history paintings or, or classical paintings that would you know, help them to become successful artists. These were the sort of the big commissions that paid and that they really needed. This certainly doesn't mean that they never did any of them. And you know, we know they did because they exist and you know they painted male nudes they painted female nudes all of this stuff is there but whether they drew them from life or not is another matter and you know these things certainly weren't as easily accessible to them as they were to to men and and they were definitely hindered by that but it's also worth saying that um it doesn't necessarily follow them that once they sort of overcame this once they became artists that they weren't taken seriously or that they were treated very differently. You know, they were perhaps considered oddities, you know, there weren't very many of them. But from, from the accounts that we have, you know, they do seem to have been taken quite seriously. So a good example of this is Lavinia Fontana again. There's a remarkable altarpiece um, at the Basilica di San Domenico in Bologna, where she was from. And it's made up of sort of it's 15 panels all around, you know, a big sort of border. And each of them depict the stories from the life of Jesus Christ. And this is really, it's a big celebration of the Bolognese school of painting. So a series of local artists were commissioned to do the work and they were each given, you know, sort of a selection of panels, a selection of the story. So, you know, some of the artists we find there, we've got Guido Reni, uh, Ludovico Caracci, Domenichino, Francesca Albani, Bartolomeo Cessi. And, you know, these are all quite big artists at the time, some more or less famous now. And then we also have Lavinia Fontana. So this sort of demonstrates, I think, that at this point, at least, you know, she was considered on par with these male artists. And, you know, in her own day at that time, she's seen as a key figure of this Bolognese school. You know, the fact that these women fell into such obscurity to be reclaimed now, I think it has more to do really with how they were treated after their deaths, perhaps, than how they were treated in their lifetimes. Wonderful. And you mentioned earlier Catherine Parr, which of course was a great patron of the arts. So I'd love to hear about some of the other people who were commissioning artworks from these women. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, she's a very good example. Um, and you know, really the goal of any painter, you know, male or female, is to rich, reliable patrons. You know, it's not easy for anyone to secure patronage in general. And you know, it really wasn't secure. It's quite a difficult world, not just for women. But it does seem that some women were more you know, helpful to women, um, if you like. So there were lots of these artists who certainly painted for women. Catherine van Hemsen, for example, she was patronised by Maria of Austria predominantly, and, and she even moved to Spain to work for her at the court there. And also we can see, you know, from what's left of her work, so, you know, most of her portraits, if they're not self-portraits, then, you know, a lot of them are portraits of women. So we can see noble women as well supporting her, getting portraits from her. You know, perhaps there's a sort of an appeal for for women to have a woman paint their portrait at this time. And Lavinia Fontana, you know, she also had a lot of commissions for women. They actually sort of bartered over, you know, haggling over price. I'll pay you more, do my portrait first. But she was also, she was in general very supported by her local community more broadly. In fact, you know, Bologna really seems to have been a city that supported women artists. It's a particular haven for that. So as I said before, you had Propezia di Rossi, who I mentioned, and also then later Elisabetta Serrani. You know, all of these were very important figures for Bologna. They were really taken on by, by the city. 
But part of what also allowed Lavinia Fontana to be so successful was that she was commissioned by the church. So the Archbishop of Bologna, he was a man called Gabriele Paleotti, he commissioned her to paint altarpieces in the, in the churches of Bologna. So this is a really big commissions for her. She really became a kind of a local celebrity and, and actually her reputation you know, traveled everywhere. So she ended up sending paintings all over the courts of Italy and of Spain, she became quite big. And I think it's partly through these different systems of patronage that she was able to kind of break through. A very good example of female patronage is in Sophonice Banguizola as well. You know, she, yeah, she was the recipient of a lot of female patronage. So Elizabeth of Valois and also her husband, Philip II of Spain, they employed her at the Spanish court as a really core court painter there. But part of her role though, went beyond court painter. So she also taught painting to Elizabeth Valois and to her daughters. And she painted you know, the whole family. She painted all their friends. Everyone there was very, very supportive of her. And I think she and Elizabeth became good friends. Uh, they took a lot of interest in her. Even after Elizabeth died, Philip continued to kind of take interest. He, he arranged her to get married to the son of the Viceroy of Spain. So she gained quite a big position there. He paid her dowry for it. He continued to give her royal pension. So you know, she could kind of keep living and, and she lived in quite a lot of comfort really, even after her husband died. So you know, she's someone who was always encouraged to be an artist and always encouraged to work and and she never had to had to give it up even even after her marriage. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I love hearing about the the women supporting each other and those networks of women that you know you don't often hear about, but we are hearing more now, so that's great. And you were talking about payment before. So do we know if women women artists were paid the same as men, or is that difficult to kind of gauge? So I mean, it's quite difficult to gauge in a way. Records for this vary quite a lot in terms of what survives. We don't necessarily know what people were paid clearly. So it's sort of, it's difficult to say a categorical yes or no, um, especially when you have artists who perhaps married men and they might both be paid for the work. So you can't be sure who was paid for what. So these things are a bit tricky, but there are certain cases where we can say, yes, they absolutely were. So in fact, Lavinia Tierlink, she was paid more than some of the men around her. So Henry VIII gave her an income of £40 a year, which is quite a substantial amount at that time. And that's more than Holbein got, you know, we think. Yes, Holbein I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he got £30 a year. So, you know, not a bad salary, but yeah. certainly not considered in the same league by, evidently by Henry VIII at this time. And, you know, this, this salary was also honoured by every monarch that she worked for. So they all thought she was, you know, worth continuing to invest in that highly. Lavinia Fontana as well, she certainly earned as much as the men around her. Um, I don't have the sort of as exact figures uh, as I do because she didn't have uh, she didn't have the same setup of a of a yearly salary. You know, she wasn't a court artist like that. But she's an interesting case as well to mention financially because when she got married, you know, she would normally have come with some kind of dowry. But it was agreed in her marriage contract that she wouldn't, though she wouldn't have a big dowry because it was sort of stated that she was going to earn so much money as an artist that that was sufficient. You know, you don't need to have a dowry. She will earn money all her life and you'll be rich and I think that's such a kind of fascinating little little sort of thing to be put in there <laughs> we've also got Sophonia Spangvisola she had a very you know, healthy salary she was given 100 ducats a year for it by Philip II a big salary and then on top of that she got paid for other works and other services so you know she was pretty wealthy and you know as I was saying before when Philip II paid her dowry it was 12,000 scudi it's a huge sum of money so she was a, you know, she was a very wealthy woman from her career. She was probably wealthier than any of the other ones that I've talked about from her art. 
And Breeze, just out of curiosity, because obviously, sometimes you know, when you're looking at paintings and it says, oh, from the studio of certain artists. So were women at this time, did they have their own studios and, and did they have like apprentices working under them? Is- yeah, I mean, occasionally it's not um, it's not necessarily that easy to be sure. Later on, you certainly have people like that. So, you know, Elizabeth Serrani in the 17th century, she had a studio. She trained other women. And that's a very kind of important distinction. So we also have Katharina van Hamsen. She was actually accepted into a painter's guild, uh, which is another, you know, very, is again, much more like a union, actually. You know, it's, a, it's where the painters all really get to belong to and, and it protects them in certain ways. But what that also meant was that she was then able to, you know, essentially run her own studio and she could have artists apprenticed to her. So we know that she had three, three male apprentices. So that's sort of evidence of a bigger of a bigger sort of scale of production. Love that. Okay. So you have talked about this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could go a little bit deeper into how these women artists were viewed. You said they were a bit like viewed as an oddity, I think you said. And and how did they challenge these gender roles? Do you want to just talk us through that a little more? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the sort of key ways for women to make themselves prominent and to establish themselves was through the cultivation of their image. And this is something that they did a huge amount and it seems like they really needed to. You know, I think it's really worth mentioning that even though they had successful careers, even though once they got there, they might have been you know, treated quite equally. It's definitely clear that they had to go a bit beyond what the men did they had to prove further that they were good they had to be sort of you know doubly good work doubly as hard and you know one of the good ways as I was saying to do this is to cultivate their image so the main way to do this was through the self-portrait this is something that you know you can have you can be commissioned to do uh, someone might like to kind of sort of have you on their wall the you know the female painter portrait the female painter sort of thing I mean certainly later Artemisia Gentileschi did this a lot of the time you know she's sort of she she kind of made herself into a celebrity that you know it's almost sort of like all these fanboys wanting the the painting of Artemisia on their sort of thing so it can be a little bit like that so yeah it could be something that was commissioned for you um it could be something that you gifted to someone that you were hoping might become your patron so you know here's me I'm an artist here's my portrait would you like some more or again you know it's the kind of thing you might have lying around your studio for when prospective clients visited you know with the same sort of thing in mind as I was saying before this was sort of started if you like by Katharina van Hemsen in 1548 we've got this this apparently first self-portrait and she sat there she's you know she's sat at the easel she's holding her paintbrush we can see on the canvas that she's painting uh, that she's already started painting a face but it's very very small it's just in the top left hand corner of the canvas and it's sort of it's suggestive, I think, there that it might be just one figure as part of a larger work. So, you know, maybe she's starting one of these big narrative paintings that I was saying was so difficult for women to achieve. But the thing about it is that, you know, she's not just sat there just getting on with the painting. It's not it's not one of those sort of slightly voyeuristic ones. But, she, you know, she's turned. She's directly staring out of the canvas. And it's like she's just looking right at you. So, you know, maybe maybe it's that she's been disturbed whilst working and she's looking out. Or perhaps it's actually that it's, you know, it's us. It's the viewer who's who's the subject. Perhaps we're part of her painting. But the really important thing, I think, about this painting is it's almost as though she's you know, she's looking out and she's saying, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm an artist, you know, I'm painting, I could be painting you, essentially. 
and the fact there's only a small amount on the canvas, you know, that she's painting within it, uh, you know, it's, it's really quite tantalizing. It's a sort of, you know, imagine what I might be painting. Imagine all of the things that I could paint for you. It's that kind of message. And certainly, so from this point on, you know, the self-portrait was commonly used by both men and women. But I think with regards to 16th century women, there wasn't, probably wasn't anyone who did this quite like Sophonice but Anquisola. We've got a lot of self-portraits by her and we can see from them, you know, how she too, she very deliberately presented herself as a painter, you know, as with the Hemerson, she's often sat in an easel or, or at least there's an easel in the background sort of alluding to her status as a painter. But I just want to talk about one very striking self-portrait that she did, uh, which I think kind of goes in with these sort of ideas of, of the roles of, you know, gender roles of women. Um, so it's called The Self-Portrait with Bernardina Campi. And it's a really, it's a very experimental painting. I mean, she was quite an experimental artist in general, sort of the way that she places her figures, the way that she's sort of presenting different scenes, I think is, is quite different for the time. This one here, so it's a mise en abîme and her, her self-portrait is essentially presented as a painting within a painting. So she paints her painting tutor, painting her. So you know, it's essentially that you know, self-portrait is almost presented as a painting by someone else, because uh, it's Benedino Campi that's painting her. But obviously it's overall a painting that she's done, so it's a sort of self-portrait. And it certainly it shares a lot stylistically with the other self-portraits that we have of her. But I think when we look a little bit more closely at this painting, though, there's something else going on. So she seems to have developed an extra right hand. Oh yes, I know that one actually. Now that you mentioned yeah, it, yeah. the right hand. <laughs> <laughs> she's got her, she's got one which is sort of fairly straightforward. You know, it's just resting gently at her side. It's you know, it's what you'd expect in in a portrait like this. You know, it's of a noble woman. She's wearing sumptuous clothes. She's having her portrait done, and there's her hand gently resting down. You know, all perfectly straightforward. But then, sort of creeping up just above it, there's another one, and it's it's so it's so playful. You know, it's almost like when her tutor isn't looking, because, you know, in the painting, her back is turned to her and, you know, he's looking out of the canvas actually just at us. So it's sort of almost as though she's moving her hand up from the pose that he's given her and she's kind of taking the brush out of his hand almost, you know, it's sort of like she's going to take over, she's going to paint herself, you know, she's going to take on the painting, which of course she's already doing, you know, the whole painting is, is by her in the first place. Um, and yeah, it's so, it's so incredibly playful and you know, it is a bit of an enigma, I suppose. You know, this is there are lots of ways you might read this. This is my this is my particular reading of it. But other than the playfulness of the painting, it surely also alludes in some part, I suppose, to her debt to her tutor. You know, he's you know sort of the master. You know, who's taught her what she knows. But it's also a very confident assertion of her own talents. Right? You know, she's she's transcending his teaching. She's taking over. And I think in the in the entire painting, you can sort of see the the undertones of that. You know, the styles of the portrait of her, which is the self-portrait, which, as I said, it's stylistically quite like her other portraits. And then the portrait that she's got of him painting her, the styles of those two are actually quite different. And, you know, it's like in this one canvas, she's really showcasing her talent. But at the same time, she's also, you know, she's presenting herself as someone who has a portrait done. You know, the self-portrait is a, is a sort of noble woman portrait. So she's saying, I'm also a noble woman, which she was, you know, it's very multifaceted. I mean, it's, yeah, and as a whole composition, it's just, it's very different to her other paintings, which are normally more, if you like, traditional paintings, you know, her Saturn easel and that sort of thing. And she painted those all through her life. We've got a really nice one actually from 1610, where she paints herself as, a, you know, as an old woman, she sat in a chair and she's sort of looking out at you. And certainly for someone like Sophonisba Anguizola, you know, this really worked. She was really very famous. There's a nice story of Van Dyke going to see her when she was you know, a very old woman. I think she was about 93 or something. This is in 1624. 
And yes, yeah, so Van Dyke went and he sort of probably, you know, to sort of sit at the font of knowledge, if you like. And uh, she gave him advice on painting. So while he was there, he also made lots of really beautiful sketches of her. Some of these still survive and, you know, they're very moving. But Van Dyke, you know, he also wrote after having met her, having, having seen her like this, he wrote that he'd learned more about painting or, or at least what he called the, the true principles of painting from her than from anyone else that he ever met in his life. But, you know, he really, he really esteemed her. And you know, the fact that he sort of made the pilgrimage, if you like, in the first place to go and see her says a lot. Um, but also Angosola's husband, he arranged for her tombstone to read, to Sophonisba, my wife, who is recorded among the illustrious women of the world, outstanding in portraying the images of man. So, you know, while we talk about it being hard for women, which it absolutely was, as I said before, I think it would be wrong to assume that because of that, they then weren't respected or celebrated in their lifetimes. You know, they, they really, really were. But as I said before, you know, it's also clear that, that they had to, you know, really prove it. They had to really work for it, really fight for it more than probably men did. And they had to be especially talented, especially because, you know, most of the time they only had a partial artistic education. So they're kind of starting from, from a harder rung, if you like. Another way in which they really, I don't know if it's challenging gender roles, but certainly juggled gender roles, if you like. Uh, lots of these women, you know, they married and they had children. One, one key example of this is, is probably Lavinia Fontana. She had something like 11 children whilst being the only breadwinner of the family, you know, the, the only income. I mean, sadly, most of her children died, only three outlived her. But you think of just the amount of years that she would have spent pregnant and giving yes. birth and having babies around, you know, tiny babies. And then she's this full-time painter earning all of the money for everyone. So, you know, they really had to, I mean, it's part of working doubly hard, isn't it? But it's also, it is breaking through. It's kind of the gender roles are, these things are, are the case, but they're, they're just pushing through and they're just carrying on. And it's really astonishing to think about it, I think. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I didn't know that that um, stories, and I'm just thinking the grief then as well, working through all that grief of losing. Oh goodness, all those babies! Now I get a sense that you like the self portraits. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about some of your other favorite portraits? It can be other self portraits, of course, um, by women artists. Absolutely. Um, so yes, I mean the Stephanie Spangosola self portrait with Benedina Campi has to be a highlight for its yeah. sort of strangeness, and it's. I kind of call it puckishness, I suppose, you know, something really cheeky about it and really fun. We're going to slightly more serious topics, perhaps. Another real favourite of mine is, there's a Judith with the head of Holofernes by Lavinia Fontana. This one is now at the Museo Davia Bagellini in Bologna. I was actually very lucky to see this just a few days ago in real life. And it's, you yeah. know, it's one of these works that it really stays with you. And you just, it's actually, unfortunately, very high up at the moment. It's recently been moved, because you know, they shift things around. But it's something that you can just really, really stare at. So it doesn't have the it doesn't have the raw violence, if you like, of someone like Artemisia's very famous renditions, or you know some of the more sublime qualities of I don't know someone like Giorgione's fifteen oh five version. But it's incredibly piercing. You know, Judith just she just stands there. She stands tall, proud. She's dressed in her finery. She's got these beautiful fabrics and jewels that that Fontana was just so particularly expert at depicting it's a you know it's a real showcase for her and she's just standing there she's holding the head of Holofernes really firmly in her left hand that's sort of halfway up the canvas I suppose and then in her right hand she's holding the sword and it's just pointing straight up to the sky so it's this real demonstration of her physical strength but we also get to see her inner strength uh, through you know on her face she's 
she's totally calm she's totally impenetrable and she's just looking right at you straight in the eyes almost and the way that Fontana's painted her is that you know, she has the light it's not sort of falling on her it's almost just right at her um everything else is in a kind of shadow or in partial lighting but she's just lit front on she's right there and her face sort of glows out of the canvas at you and it's not the only time that Lavinia Fontana treated the story. Uh, there's another rendition of hers, which is also in Bologna. And it's like, you know, she, she's also using the, the kind of central Judith figure in the lighting very, in, you know, in interesting ways there. So it's sort of even more dramatic. You know, this time she's, she's lit her from above and Judith's looking up. She doesn't, she, you know, she's not aware of the viewer. She's in her own sort of ethereal world, if you like. And it's like, it's as though the light's sort of coming from, from heaven above and, and she's looking up at it and it's a very sort of serene but also very self-assured expression. And, you know, in this one, actually, it's interesting because the head of Holofernes is really just an afterthought. It's, it's all about Judith. And I think, I think these paintings really show, you know, that, that she's very good at kind of forefronting her, her female figures like that. But also, you know, the way that she's using light and shadow in these pieces is really kind of looking at the Baroque, if you like, that's very much in its infancy at the moment. You know, she's really a mannerist painter, but she's already kind of starting to, to push through, I think. But perhaps my favourite painting, it's certainly my favourite portrait of the time, but maybe my favourite painting altogether, is, um, is a Sophonice by Anguizola. And she's painted it of Catalina Michaela of Spain. She was one of the children of Elizabeth Valois. So it's someone that Anguizola knew well. You know, she taught her painting, as I was saying earlier, spent a lot of time with this family. But this portrait is um, you know, it's so unlike anything else of the period. It's really quite extraordinary. And it's actually also quite unlike Anguizola's other works. So we have Catalina you know, absolutely in the dead center. She's looking out at the viewer from a completely dark background. You know, there's absolutely no attempt, no desire to create a setting. It's just all about her. And, you know, as again, like Fontana, it's one of the things that Anguissola does. She really puts her women center stage and it's really, you know, it's about them. So, so in this painting, we've got Catalina, she's wrapped in this, you know, a really luxurious ermine fur and, and we can see a jeweled hand, you know, her jeweled hand pulling it close around her and her wrist, you know, on her wrist we can see revealed a very beautiful, delicate lace cuff. And, um, you know, Catalina was well known at the time for her absolute dedication to fashion. She was a very, very stylish woman. And, you know, you get this in most of the paintings that we have of her. But I think this piece by Anguizola is, you know, it's so particular, it's so beautifully intimate. And although she's very stylish, she's it's, it's sort of completely unceremonial in comparison to other works of hers where she's usually you know sat quite sort of straight up and you know looking out whereas you know this is a this is a tender piece it's it's quite you know it's very close view it's just just up to her shoulders you know it's like she's kind of very very near to her and um you know it's very different to what you'd expect I think it's as though we're being allowed just for a moment uh to glimpse a person behind a princess you know it's as though she's which has got this second before she's back to performing. It's almost like sort of the in-between moment where she's relaxing and then she'll sit up again. And Catalina was apparently quite an austere presence to most people, but this picture to me, I think, you know, it suggests a, a real friendship and a real intimacy. And it's also, you know, I think it's a beautiful example of the, of the kind of complex lives of these women, you know, for painter and sitter, you know, they're, they're always on show, they're always judged. There's a struggle for acceptance, there's a struggle for freedoms. They're expected to fulfill certain gender roles, but you know, did they break out of them? You know, they had talent and, and they found ways to use them. And I just think this sort of encapsulates a lot of, a lot of those things.
Oh, what a wonderful way to end. That's so true. I totally agree with you. I love when, you know, people say, oh, these, this is what was expected, but this is what they did. And it's always that breaking out and the pushing the boundaries. Love it. So I'm sure our listeners are thinking, where can they find out more about you and about your work so they can follow? So do you have a, a website or are you on social media? Yeah, I think my website is probably the best place to be starting off with. So that's breezebarrington.com, just all one word, breezebarrington, and then .com. It has links to all of my articles and all the recordings, everything I've ever done. <laughs> so that's probably the best place to go if you want to read a bit more. But also, if you keep an eye on my Instagram, then that's where I'll sort of put updates about my book and different bits of news. So uh, that's also a good place to go. And also sometimes I've been known to do little series like I a sort of women in fashion series and stuff like that from the 16th, 17th century. So if you like that kind of thing, then that's also a good place to look. Well, I absolutely do. So I'm going to follow in all those places. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for agreeing to take part in our All Things 16th Century Women special. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.